0: The National Soccer Coaches Association of America is proud to present the NSCAA podcast presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linke. The NSCAA is the go-to resource for soccer coaches of any level. From education to networking, the NSCAA has something for everyone. Go to NSCAA.com to learn more about the world's largest soccer coaches organization today. Now, here's your host, Dean Linke.
1: Hello, I am Dean Linke, proud to be the host of the NSCAA Podcast, now coming to you year-round, and thanks to our fine presenting sponsor, Team Snap. Another great show for you today. I think coaches at every level will indeed enjoy it. Our second guest will be the Wales men's national team coach, Chris Coleman, who, with coordination between the NSCAA and the LMA, was kind enough to answer our questions. You will enjoy his interview. And off the top, we will be joined by a man who will share his experiences with coaches at every level, including at Major League Soccer, NASC, and now the NWSL professional ranks. Kurt Johnson, now president and general manager of the North Carolina Football Club, which consists of the NASL's North Carolina FC men's professional team and the NWSL's North Carolina Courage professional team, as well as one of the key players in the formation of NCFC Youth, which now includes the Capital Area Soccer League and the Triangle Football Club will join me. Kurt played as a youth for Castle, helped captain NC State to the 1990 College Cup, and he was general manager for the MLS Cup and Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup winning Kansas City Wizards, among other high-level soccer jobs across the country. Kurt is going to share with us what he looks for in hiring a coach at the professional level, how the formation of NCFC Youth came to be, and the transition into women's professional soccer, and so much more. And Kurt will do that right after this message from Team SNAP.
0: Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to teamsnap.com nscaa1. Now, once again, here's your host,
1: Dean Linky. Thanks, Team Snap, and we'll get right to it with Kurt Johnson. You heard his resume, and we missed quite a bit as well. But, Kurt, thanks for being on the NSCAA podcast.
2: Excited to be with you, Dean.
1: Well, Kurt, we're going to start from the early days because your transition from a player at the youth level into college and then into the U.S. soccer, Adidas scene, and U.S. club soccer and major league soccer, and so much more. But let's go back to those early days. What coach... If you can, Kurt, made an impact on you during your youth playing days.
2: I was very, very fortunate to have a number of coaches that were very organized, were constantly, as youth players, giving us new and different opportunities, challenging us with different coaches. Anson Dorrance uh, coached our, our youth club team off and on for for a number of months uh, at a key period in my life my high school coach Ed Yeoman was a former ASL uh, goalkeeper and was an incredibly organized, tactical coach. Uh, also worked us very hard, so I learned great work ethic, I think, from him. And then George Tarantini, you know, was all about the game and all about playing the game the right way and a very attacking-minded coach. And I uh, learned a ton from him as well.
1: What do you remember about when you woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm good enough to play college soccer? And I asked that because obviously the landscape for college soccer has changed. But And I realized, Kurt, it's been, you know, a few, Years back, so I know I'm going to challenge your memory, but what do you remember about that time when you said, You know what, I'm good enough to play college soccer?
2: That's a great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. Um, it, it was a long time ago, but I, you know, I'm not sure I really knew un, until I got into the college soccer environment. I, I, th- I think I probably knew that I that I could play at some level, but to play at the ACC level, I'm not sure I knew until that first day of practice. I, I hoped, but fortunately it worked out, and, and I was comfortable in the environment and grew kind of each day early on
1: all right well let's talk about your time at nc state because you know right now when you think about college soccer you definitely see what the tar heels are doing you know that uh, duke won the national championship was way back in 1986 wake forest continues to do great now nc state they've made another coaching change but in 1990 you led the Wolfpack to the college cup that was pretty amazing what do you remember about that team
2: well, it's a special team. You know, NC State it had uh, great teams for, for many years uh, leading into the 1990 season, uh, but they all always fell short. When it came NCAA tournament time, um, at that point we probably had the best record of any uh, ACC school in the first three ACC tournaments, and uh, so had done well in the ACC tournament overall, but had not won it yet. And that year just came together— incredible talent. uh, You know, Henry Gutierrez, Dario Bros, Roy Lassiter et cetera, et cetera, Scotty Schweitzer, some, you know, top 50 type all-time ACC players. And, uh, you know, tremendous camaraderie, which maybe some of the NCA NC State teams in the past had had struggled with at times. You know, we had, as Coach Gansler used to say, an esprit de corps amongst our team in 1990 that was really special, and and we uh, won the ACC championship, beating Virginia in the final, and then uh, went all the way to the semifinals of the NCAA tournament and lost in penalty kicks to an incredible UCLA team.
1: That was Brad Friedel in goal, right?
2: Brad Friedel is a freshman, I believe, Kobe Jones possibly is a freshman, Chris Henderson, Joe Max Moore, the list goes on and on. It was an incredible team.
1: Mike Lapper, okay, well since this is the NSCA podcast, and you already said George Tarantini's name, but you know he was an interesting cat. I remember him spending time with Bora Militinovich, very eccentric, George very eccentric. What was it like playing under him, Kurt Johnson?
2: Well, Coach Tarantini was pretty much the soccer version of Jim Valvano, and (laughs) and, uh, many people may not know George Tarantini, but uh, a lot of people have over the years gotten to know Jim Valvano through... The thirty for thirties, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and and so, uh, Coach Tarantini, Looking from the outside, it was kind of, He was kind of flamboyant and boisterous and strutted around, but. You know, really, fundamentally, he was about the game. We played a lot in practice. We we played all sorts of crazy games, 13 versus 7, and the 7 were the core starters. And, you know, it, it was uh, a lot of possession, a lot of attacking. And defenders, you know, you, you learn by trial and error a lot. You know, you we were playing against incredible players, Tab Ramos, Henry Gutierrez, Tommy Tanner, and and, you know, guys with great individuality and and so with Coach the game taught all of us I think and and that was the approach he treated us more like professionals probably than college players a lot of times incredible passion and and it was a lot of fun to play for him.
1: We're here with Kurt Johnson the president and general manager of the North Carolina Football Club which consists of the NASL's professional team as well as the NWSL's North Carolina Courage and Kurt you can see what we're doing here and what we like to do on this program is you know tell the story of the early days building up. Okay, so you're done with college, talk about that transition to a little bit. Richmond, and and then how you got the call for Major League Soccer's Kansas City Wizards.
2: Well, you know, for those that remember the early '90s in soccer, there was not there were not a lot of playing opportunities. I was probably you know a player that that maybe would have gotten drafted in the late rounds of the uh, MLS draft uh, back in the day but there was no MLS very few opportunities i was a role player not a star player so i wasn't going overseas and uh, so soccer from a soccer playing standpoint not the greatest timing but from the opportunity to get in on the business side uh, was tremendous. I, I got an opportunity to work for Adidas in soccer marketing and promotions, was the Midwest rep, moved to Soccer House, moved to Chicago, was based out of Soccer House, the U.S. Soccer Federation headquarters, and basically got a, a master's in, in soccer, you know, if that's the right way to say it. I was able to, to meet a lot of the key people in and around the soccer world. A lot of the work centered with U.S. soccer, but also college soccer, youth soccer, was leading up to hosting the 1994 World Cup. So it was a really special time for the growth of the sport in the United States and uh, was an awesome time for me to, to get my foot in the door in pro soccer.
1: Okay, and you transitioned from Adidas to where and how?
2: After Adidas, after the 1994 World Cup, I was uh, had the coaching bug, I, I coached basically anything and everything, I coached high school soccer at Ravenscroft School, my alma mater, I, I, I coached youth soccer with Castle, both boys and girls, I coach. I was a volunteer assistant coach for the Raleigh Flyers of the US ISL, and I uh, coached at NC State uh, in the mid-90s. Great opportunities to be involved at, at all levels of the game, was very interested in, in coaching for the long term, but at that time Pro soccer was really gathering speed, uh, and, and USISL was growing. Richmond Kickers had an opening uh, in, in their sales area and, and the soccer side. And I took that opportunity. My wife and I moved to Richmond Kickers uh, in 1997.
1: Okay, so here we go. So you're at Richmond. You um, laid the storyline so great, talking about Adidas and then the coaching bug, and now you're working your way into management. So you were at Richmond how long before you got the call from Major League Soccer in Kansas City?
2: Three years in Richmond, you know, with a staff of of four, five, six, depending on the year in the front office, and and we all did everything. We, We shared all the responsibilities from Operations to sales started to do a lot on the team side as well, working with coaches like Frank Kohlenstein and Colin Clark. It was a baptism by fire. I mean, we were learning as we went how to sell sponsorships, how to sell tickets, how to put a, a team on the field, get players signed, contracts, immigration, everything. It was fantastic.
1: Okay, so then Kansas City called you, they had already been in existence for a couple years, right? They called you in what year three or four, somewhere in there.
2: It was late 1990. Yep. Kansas City, if you remember, had some very good teams early on in MLS, but but fell short of winning a championship, then had a couple of years where they didn't. Their team performance wasn't great. Doug Newman was so smart in hiring Bob Gansler in the middle part of 1999, and, and Bob began to to rebuild, and and I had the opportunity to come in and interview with the Hunts in late 1999, my first ever trip to Kansas City, and I'll remember it like it was yesterday, walking into Arrowhead Stadium, sitting down, spending the afternoon with Lamar and Clark, and um, I was sold, I don't know if they were sold on me, but it worked out and moved the family to Kansas City in uh, early 2000, January 2000.
1: Okay. So here you go. And obviously anybody that listens to the NSCA podcast know that uh, we love Bob Gansler. He's an NSCA honor award winner. He's a hall of famer, U.S. soccer hall of famer. So you go into a general manager job where you have so much to do, Kurt Johnson, you know that. And one of the biggest things to get done is have a good team and to have a good team. Sometimes, yeah, you got to have great players, but you need a great coach. He was already there. Talk about what it was like to have him as your coach of this professional team at the highest level in the United States.
2: Well, he, he, you know, at that point, he's in his prime. You know, he's he's a pioneer that, it, it, at that point in his career, had had done everything except win MLS Cup. You know, he had qualified the U.S. national team into the 1990 World Cup, the first qualification in in decades. He had coached uh, successfully in college, coached successfully in in the USISL a tremendous player he was a pioneer in our coaching schools he was he was the you know, go-to guy as it relates to to men's soccer in the United States, and and uh, you know he set the standard for for so many others, and so it was a pleasure. You know, we hit it off right away. I think we had a fantastic working relationship for for many many years, and and you know it was fun. We won some games, we won some championships, and and most importantly, we had a lot of fun along the way.
1: Well, indeed, you did win some championships, not only an MLS Cup but a Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup, Kurt. In the best way you can, describe what made him such a great coach.
2: As a definition, student of the game, you know, it's his picture next to it. Every facet, he's studied the game in, in every way. Uh, I think also he was extraordinary about getting to know his players and, and, and being, I would say, a father figure to his players. He was a master at understanding their backgrounds where they came from, getting them on the same page and truly to be an effective coach, it's about X and O's obviously, but it's also about getting the most out of your players, understanding your players and and Bob certainly took the time and continues to take the time to do all of that as he uh, has evolved as as a coach and a, and a mentor in, a, in the soccer coaching circles.
1: He had to deal with Preki. Talk about how he was able to do that.
2: Precky is an uh, incredible player and huge personality. and think they've got the best out of each other i I think precky challenged you know all of us to be the best that we could be and and there's no doubt that that bob got the best out of of precky there were moments there were there were difficult moments you know no one's here to say anything different but uh the reality was uh in 2000 and then You know, Precky's MVP year, I believe that was 2002, 2003, I'm not sure. Incredible. Those were incredible moments for Major League Soccer and and, and U.S. Soccer.
1: Well, you know the NSCA. You know our listeners will love hearing you tell your description of Bob Gansler. Okay, and we also know, Kurt, that home is where the heart is, right? And so, Raleigh, North Carolina, as you said, Castle, Ravenscrofts, NC State, it pulled you back. You were with the NHL. You went down to Charleston, but it still counts all the same or whatever, and then boom, all of a sudden you have opportunity to join the then-named Carolina Railhawks. For you, it was a natural returning home, wasn't it?
2: It was, yeah. You know, I— was pleased to get the opportunity um, after being out of professional soccer for for four or so years. I felt like it was the right time for soccer in the Triangle to really blossom at the professional level. Uh, I felt like it was necessary, you know, in 2011 for us to to move the game forward from a professional standpoint in the Triangle and in North Carolina, or we'd get left behind, quite honestly. And it's been uh, a lot of labor, but a lot of fun, and I think we've made a lot of progress.
1: Okay, indeed. And as you know, in professional soccer, there's going to be landmines, and we don't need to go too deep into it, but... there were some landmines with the Carolina Railhawks, and now all of a sudden those landmines are gone. And that includes the, with Steve Malik in the ownership part of it. But even with different ownership, you had to hire a new coach because Martin Rennie, a great young coach, went on to Major League Soccer. And so you looked around and you said, you know what, what am I looking for in a coach? You went to Colin Clark. Why did you pick Colin Clark? He's obviously had great success.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think that success, a history of success, is part of it. You know, he he won a championship in Puerto Rico before he came here. He had a very solid stint in Major League Soccer with, with FC Dallas. He was successful with the kickers, 98, 99, 2000. Colin has a network. He has a lot of players that enjoy playing for him and have enjoyed playing for him he is is somebody that is respected immensely both from a playing standpoint and now what he's done in this country over 20 plus years as as a coach. He's seen it all and done it all and and he's adaptable. You know, we know in the division 2 game right now, you don't have every resource that you necessarily want. You don't get every player that you necessarily want. And uh I knew that he would come in and make the most of the resources that we had in 2012 and that he would methodically build and help me build the organization on the technical side in a way that was partnership-minded and that that built our connections and our resources so that, you know, we're in a place where we are in 2017 which with a much more robust, built-out technical side.
1: A lot of general managers, they got to hire a coach. You had to find an owner, (laughs) right? I mean, with the situation with traffic, you had to go out and find an owner. And boy, did you ever find one!
2: Yes, you know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I had some experience in that in the in the latter days uh, or latter years in Kansas City. We went through. uh a sale process, which which worked out very well, with the the Cerner Corporation founders uh, buying Kansas City Wizards, and and the rest is history. There, what they've been able to do with with sporting Kansas City over the last decade, we're we're all very proud of. And so that was a tough process. It was it was very difficult uh, at the time. Uh, Mr. Hunt's health was failing, and and there was just a lot of a lot of difficulty around that situation, and a lot of a lot of sadness too. Quite honestly. And and the reality is is you know, I guess what doesn't tear you down makes you stronger and, and those two years that process really prepared me I think for the challenge of what we faced with the traffic situation the urgency that we had to to find o- a new owner and we just went through a process we we identified exactly what we needed here with the railhawks at the time we set about partnering with people to help us uh, identify prospective owners and we were very fortunate to get a meeting with Steve and you know the rest is history he was just a natural from the beginning very interested in the community, very interested in soccer and growing soccer, saw the potential for pro soccer in the Triangle in North Carolina and has quickly established himself, once he was an owner uh, of Carolina Railhawks, now North Carolina FC, as a leader amongst other owners in the NASL and NWSL, and certainly as it relates to now U.S. soccer on the board and and our MLS bid.
1: Okay, so, Kurt, here we go. There's three more topics to cover as we wrap it up, okay? Number one, the formation of this incredible youth club, now NCFC, the combination of Castle and Triangle Football Club. Talk about uh, what that means for for North Carolina FC and for soccer across the country.
2: Well, I think it's pretty self-explanatory for for North Carolina FC and the North Carolina Courage to to be a part of the largest youth to pro soccer club uh, in the country is is massive. It's it's massive for. You know, no matter what lens you look at soccer through in your community, um, this is going to have a positive impact on it. As it relates to our MLS bid, clearly it, it sets us apart. We're the we're the biggest. As it relates to participation opportunities for the youngest of the kids, you know, at the rec level, this is going to be positively impacted. we're going to be able to pull resources. We're going to be able to build facilities faster. We're going to be able to educate coaches in a in a in a more streamlined way because we're going to be consolidating all of our resources from youth to pro in, in, in the triangle with, with this club. From a branding standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, to have over 14,000 players in our system and all those families, all those fans uh, interconnected is tremendous. And, and I think what it, what it shows for the country, uh, it's just another building block. There's so many examples now of communities like Kansas City, Portland, Dallas, where at los angeles, where where the sport is pooling resources, where people are coming together, and we're starting to reach the full potential of of development of of facility building and and really speed the growth of the game. and and this is this is unique this is different this is two two clubs coming together partnering as opposed to you know sometimes competing against each other it's a massive moment for for North Carolina soccer
1: okay now you continue to grow and learn and everything you're doing and now you're in women's professional soccer what has that been like bringing the North Carolina Courage here
2: this is just a natural piece of of the puzzle for for soccer in north carolina we've been leaders in in the women's and girls game Uh, Since the late 70s, in terms of participation opportunities, we've been leaders in terms of gender equity and and, uh, college programs with with North Carolina Duke and NC State and and the dominance of the North Carolina program. We've been leaders. And, you know, from a participation and fan standpoint, you know, 50% of the participants of soccer in and around the triangle are female. Approximately 50% of our fans are females. So it's just a natural piece of the North Carolina Football Club to have the highest level of women's soccer in the world, the NWSL, to have a franchise here. And we're pretty pleased to be leading the league at this point. Uh, We've got a very exciting uh, roster of players led by Paul Riley, our head coach. They have just breathed new life into our organization. It's It's a fantastic group of women. Really enjoyed getting to know them.
1: All right, Kurt, final question, and I know that uh, this has been an extended interview, but uh, really your story helps kind of tell the story of soccer in this country. That's why we wanted to spend a little extra time with you. And here we go, Major League Soccer, 20-plus years now. I was part of it in the early days in full circle, hoping to be a part of it with you as well as the voice of uh, the soccer team. And, boy, we got the bid going out with Major League Soccer. And give us an update on how that process has been, how you're feeling about things, and how grueling it is because it's not easy.
2: We're fine or six months into our process in the sense of, of announcing our intention and, and submitting uh, the beginnings of our bid and, and now uh, adding to that bid over over the last couple of months with the, the youth to pro club announcement, narrowing down our, our sites, hoping to come forward with, with a specific site and development plan here uh, over the next couple of months, planning to have Major League Soccer visit in the next couple of months. So our bid is coming together. We are incredibly bullish on North Carolina and the Triangle, both from a history standpoint. We've hosted the best Final Fours here, men's and women's. We've hosted the best of of youth soccer and youth soccer tournaments. Uh, We've got some of the finest facilities. We were leaders in building soccer-specific facilities. And now it's time for us to to join uh, at the highest level in Major League Soccer. We know it's not going to be easy. There are a lot of communities out there with great bids, but we we feel confident that it's not a matter of of if but when. We feel very confident that the Triangle will, will have a Major League Soccer team in the near future.
1: Outstanding answers. And, Kurt, finally, as you know, as we talked about your accolades at the youth level and then going on to college and then all of the time you've spent in professional soccer now with NWSL and goals to be with Major League Soccer, you know the NSCAA is kind of a unifier with every single alphabet soup of soccer. You've been to the convention. You've been around the NSCA coaches. What do you think of the organization?
2: Well, I know it well uh, from my time in Kansas City and and having it based there. Very proud of the work that the NSCA does. No one other than my parents and and close friends, uh, you know, family members have been more influential in my life than the coaches that I've been around. There's not even a a, a question from my. P teacher when I was a little kid to my youth coaches, high school coach, college coach and and the coaches that I've been able to work with, an incredible group of people and my passion for the game comes from my interactions with with those coaches and and uh, in large part. So, love the work the NSCA does to to grow the level of coaching and and the amount of coaches and the passion around the coaches and uh, their commitment to the game as a whole, not just coaching, but college soccer, youth soccer, Soccer at all levels has been a huge part of the growth of our sport over the last couple of decades.
1: Phenomenal answer, phenomenal interview. It's not every day you can talk to somebody that has the tie-in with Bob Gansler, has the tie-in with Tab Ramos, has the tie-in with Lamar Hunt, and the list goes on. Boy, you did great, Kurt Johnson. Appreciate it. I want to wish you all the best with your bid for Major League Soccer with Steve Malik. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for the good words for the NSCAA. Really enjoyed it, Kurt. I
2: thoroughly enjoyed it. Anytime.
1: All right. Speaking of great coaches, Chris Coleman, the head coach of the Wales men's national team, is next on the NSCAA podcast presented by TeamSnap. The NSCAA is proud to announce the launch of our Online Foundations of Coaching Diploma. This online course has been developed as the perfect introduction to coaching youth soccer for the first time and a helpful refresher for those coaches coming back to the youth game. It provides insight to targeted activities and age-appropriate instruction for beginning to advanced players and is free to NSCAA members. Visit NSCAA.com jobs to learn more.
0: Still managing your club or league on paper and spreadsheets? Go paperless with Team Snap. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on communication, registration, scheduling and more. Plus, they have way fewer paper cuts. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com NSCAA1. Now, once again, here's your host, Dean Linky.
1: Welcome back to the NSCAA podcast presented by Team Snap. Special thanks to our first guest, Kurt Johnson. Well, the League Managers Association, the LMA, has again conducted interviews on behalf of the NSCAA, including an interview with Wales men's national team head coach, Chris Coleman. And we bring that to you right now.
3: Hello and welcome to St. George's Park, England. Uh, We're very fortunate today to have Wales manager Chris Coleman with us. Uh, he's going to answer a few questions about Wales and his career and uh, and give us a bit more insight into life as an international football manager. So Chris, uh, welcome. Thank you. So last summer, Wales debuted at Euro 2016 in stunning fashion, winning your group over England and going all the way to the semi-final. That run came four years into your tenure with the national team. How did you go about the process of implementing a culture and identity that paid off so tremendously in France? I think it was... Um... In my first two years those 18 months really
4: I didn't go to plan for various reasons and when we started the second campaign I was very clear in what I thought we needed to do um, to, to to be successful very clear in my game plan um, and in our in our planning and I just think we you uh, always need a little bit of luck as well in any success you have and um, you know touchwood we were able to get up best team on the, on the pitch consistently uh, throughout the 10 game campaign um, and uh, yeah we, I think we probably had uh, everybody buying into the game plan I keep using that word game plan but it was so important to us you know uh, and everybody followed it stuck to it um, and uh, we were, it was fruitful for us
3: and your success has earned no shortage of attention and accolades including a nomination for the FIFA World Coach of the Year in 2016 and there also seems to be a higher degree of expectations for the team as it's risen through into the top ten of the FIFA rankings. How do you handle that pressure both personally and professionally?
4: I think now as a team we you know, we've in this, this campaign we've gone to the Republic of Ireland and we've drawn and we've gone to Austria and drawn, we've drawn our home to Serbia. You know, I it, it's almost people are a little bit disappointed because we haven't won. Um, but I'm very realistic, you know. We, we've been on a fantastic run, and as, as, as you've said, we been in the top 10 in the FIFA rankings. We're third at a tournament, and I think we've lost one one campaign game in 17, I think. So the team have done very, very well, but I'm, I'm a realist, you know. You're going to have times where results aren't coming your way um, for whatever reason, but I think if you've been in the game long enough, you know you never get carried away. Whether it's going good, bad, or indifferent, you know you stick to stick to what you believe in. Let other people do all the talking, um, whether it's good or bad. You just stick to what you believe in. And, um, it's great when you have a bit of success, and we've never had success like we've just had in the last two or three years. And yeah, we, you know, we, we've had to deal with things slightly differently. But um, in in a way, you know that you know if you're going to do something a little bit special, people are going to stand up and take notice an of so you more than what they normally would. You just have to to learn to live with that Um, and that's what we're finding out right now.
3: And through the five games so far in the World Cup qualifying campaign, Wales has yet to trail uh, yet you've third in Group D with four consecutive draws. What will be the key in the final five qualifiers to put Wales in position to reach the World Cup for the first time in 60 years?
4: I think for ourselves, Republic of Ireland, Serbia and Austria, the teams were looked upon as either first or second in this tough group. Uh, there's also Georgia, who are a good team, in Moldova. Um, they've all got something to say. But I think in the remaining games, you, you, you probably need to win four out of the five, which is never easy. Um, but that's the same for all four teams, you know. Uh, we are capable of going to win three or four on the bounce because we've shown that and done it before. Um, but before is before is in the past. It's not going to help us in the future. No? You know, for, for any one of the teams I've mentioned, if we're going to qualify or going to get to that second playoff spot, you seriously have to look, look at winning four or five games. And an international football is never, ever easy. But, uh, it's you know, it's doable. We're capable of it. Uh, but that's what we're all looking at.
3: And moving now to the, uh, the fact that the men's and women's finals of the UEFA Champions League will be held in Wales in June. How big of an honour is this for the Federation to host these two events for the first time?
4: Yeah, huge, I think. You know, we're a small nation in terms of, you know, there's three, three, three and a half million uh, people in the population of Wales. And, you know, and it's, it's not the biggest country, but nevertheless, we've always tried to compete um, at the serious level um, on, on, on all different sporting fronts for us to achieve what we've achieved um, not just a football team but obviously we've always had a very strong rugby team uh, but now to get some of these uh, you know the, the big sporting events to come to our country it's a huge feather in the, in the cap of everybody involved that's tried um, relentlessly over these years to for people to stand up and take notice of us and um, so to get, you know, the Champions League final as well as an absolute, being, being in the football industry myself, the Champions League final is absolutely fantastic for the whole nation and um, I think Cardiff's a fitting city for it, the stadium no doubt is magnificent. Uh, so yeah, it's a huge honour for us to, to stage these huge sporting events.
3: Okay, and the final with it being held in uh, his hometown, Gareth Bale is hopefully recovering from a calf injury in time to play a role for Real Madrid, followed by a World Cup qualifier just eight days later in Serbia. So how does the relationship work between a player his club and his national team in management of an injury all the way from evaluation to treatment to ultimately squad selection Transparency basically um,
4: right the way through we're very fortunate that I'm very fortunate that we're a fantastic medical team with me with Wales and we monitor everything everything the play, the players do when they come with us um, from f- food they eat the sleep that they get the rest they get the the sessions that they have, what type of work it was, you know, that's all documented and given to the clubs, it's all there for the clubs if they need it um, and you have to build these relationships up with clubs because effectively we're borrowing their players because the players don't belong to us, they belong to the clubs, you know, they're under contract with the clubs. And, um, so you have to treat them properly and ideally we send the players back in good enough condition to, to, to play. Uh, the next game for their club after international football you know that's the ideal world Um, so but then you you know you have to to, to build relationships build trust um, and that comes through honesty and uh, I think we've we've got a great relationship with Real Madrid they've never ever stood in our way uh, in terms of us taking Gareth they've never put obstacles in our way they've always been fantastic they realise that Gareth's very very passionate about Wales and representing his country they know how important that is to him uh, and they've been absolutely wonderful people to work with. They really have. So, um, yeah, there's been uh, there's not been one incident where I that at it and thought maybe we could have done that better, or maybe Real Madrid could have done that better. So, in, in that instance, with with, with Gareth Bale and, and, and his Club Madrid, absolutely first class. And I've got to say that about 99 percent of our players in the clubs. You can't please everybody all the time. There's always a problem now and again. But, you know, it's understandable, but predominantly, you know, touch wood, I have to say, in my experience, it's been, uh, the clubs have been easy to deal with and, you know, sort sort the players.
3: We mentioned Gareth, uh, but he's part of uh, something of a golden generation of players representing the Welsh national team at the moment, alongside the likes of Aaron Ramsey, Joe Allen and others. What initiatives have been put in place to produce such world-class talent? And what role has coach education played over the course of that process? Well, I think we've produced world-class talent. I'm talking about
4: my lifetime as a professional footballer. I played in some very, very good teams. You know, you know, I played in one team with Neville Southall at the time was probably one of, if not the best goalkeeper on the planet. Ian Rush, definitely one of the best strikers on the planet. Um, Ryan Giggs, Mark Hughes, all in the same team, you know, top talent. But we never managed to produce the goods. And the team that came after, not long after that, with Craig Bellamy, again Ryan Giggs, John Hartson, um, Gary Speed, you know, that again was some top players, but we never produced it. And so now, this generation, who were labeled the golden generation before they learned it, uh, they've actually gone on and done something that no one else has done. So they've earned that, that label. So, what all we can do as a nation, you know, we've only got so many boys, so many. Young youngsters that play football there's only so many of them are going to make it through we've got to try and improve the, the quality of the grassroots football in, in, improve the, the facilities you know the pitches the changing rooms where they, where they train when they train more game time more ball time for, for young players more pitch time uh, and that's investment that's a huge investment but we need as an association we need help from our government you know the country and um, so, and it's uh, there's no guarantees, of course, that you're going to produce because sometimes it goes in cycles. You have a good batch, or you have a bad batch of players. But you know, I think if anything's going to stimulate young players to to look at what can be achieved uh, and stimulate them into playing football, into playing, wanting to play international football, then I don't think this team can do much more than what they've done. And off the pitch, like I said, we've got to make sure we do our best to try to get the right investment to invest in the grassroots football and the facilities that these young players these young boys are getting as much game time as they can as much time training working, playing uh, because obviously in our country what we can't do is control the weather bad weather affects the pitches so and the only the only um, solution I can see would be to have more 4G pitches 3 4G pitches
3: Uh, well, they're guaranteed game time uh, and that's very important. So, you know, that's what we've we've got to try and look to do. Finally, last question for you, Chris. Bob Bradley became the first American coach in the Premier League this year when he arrived in Wales to lead Swansea City. Conversely, former Welsh international Carl Robinson has been in charge of MLS side Vancouver Whitecaps FC since 2014. Having coached abroad yourself in Spain and Greece, what are the challenges that come with such a career move? You have to... As
4: soon as you go into someone else's country, you have to embrace the culture. You have to try to, to learn the language, even if you can't get by with it. You know, when you when you're dealing with individual players or in front of the team, when you're doing team talks, you have to attempt to speak their their language. You have to, you know, integrate yourself into their culture. and not expect everybody to change for you. Um, you know, football it is. Is a is a universal language we know that but communication is, is is obviously huge you can be the greatest coach in the world if you're not if you're not communi- communicating properly with with, with your team uh, and, your, and your staff um, then you know it's gonna fall by the wayside it doesn't matter how much knowledge you've got what a great plan you've got you need to communicate it properly you know so that's why I in my experience of working in, in other countries uh, uh, and I, I'd love to have that experience again I really would you know I think it improved me as a coach improved me as a manager because it you know working in different countries is different obstacles you need to get over um and then you you know you you, you experience it and then you get better from that experience um so I have really enjoyed my, my times abroad and I'd like to do it again I really would uh it's not easy you know everybody wants to come to the premier league that's where you know the or the line right like there and that's where all the finance is at the moment so it's tough I think probably 50% of the Premier League managers are not British uh, and certainly the, the top three or four clubs the managers are not British we know that Tottenham Chelsea Tottenham Manchester City Liverpool Man United all foreign coaches um, so you know I think that um, not enough British coaches will go, go abroad to work and that's because largely everybody wants to work in the Premier League even the Championship is a big league financially it's, you know there's, there's rewards there but for me I would recommend to any coach if they, are, if they have a chance any British coach, as many as they can if they get the chance to work abroad go and work abroad because it definitely definitely improves you as a manager and, and as a coach
3: Thank you again for taking the time to speak with us and on behalf of the LMA and the NSCA, Thank you Thank you very much Thank you
1: Yes, thank you indeed to Chris Coleman, head coach of the Wales Men's National Team, and thank you indeed to the LMA, the League Managers Association. I also want to thank Kurt Johnson, the President General Manager of North Carolina FC, covering all bases of soccer across the country. And thanks to all the good people at the NSCAA, including Ashley Goodrich, Kurt Austin, Sean Chevrolet, and the rest of the gang. We'll see you in two weeks for another edition of the NSCAA Podcast presented by By
0: By being a member of the NSCAA, you are part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find coaches like you who are passionate about bettering themselves and their players. Go to NSCAA.com to find out more.